Let me pray again briefly. Father, we acknowledge our inadequacy and that, Lord, even as those who have your spirit have new life, we need you to open the eyes of our heart to see truth. And God, would you do that this morning in such a way that we see your son and we're transformed because we do. In his name, amen. We're in week three of the On the Road series, and this is a series that the, the goal of which is to see Christ. Am I okay? Are you, do I need to use this one? Okay. Uh, we've looked at uh, John 1 and Genesis 1, and that uh, John made sure that we knew that the Word of God he spoke about in Genesis 1, in John 1, was the same as the Creator God that spoke the heavens and the earth into existence in Genesis 1. And we saw in the second week that when we read about Adam in the garden, God very intentionally means for us to see the second or final Adam, and that a birth to our natural father Adam isn't enough. If we're going to live with God forever, we need a new birth through the second and the final Adam, the Lord Jesus. This morning we're going to look in Genesis 3, at what is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. You know, we sort of do a bit of theology when we say Jesus is God because we compare Scripture with Scripture. And Same thing when we say Jesus is the final Adam. We, we have to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and, and look at 1 Corinthians 15 and, and put things together. But in Genesis 3, we have the first direct statement by God in the Bible that said he was going to send a Savior. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Now before we do, just to give a brief introduction, if you look at uh, comparative religions, if you look at religious stories from around the globe, and especially ancient ones, you'll see that almost all of them share the same stories, at, at least in germ form. So... If you look at the ancient religions of the world, they have a flood narrative. We'll probably talk about that later. But they also have a narrative about a special woman, sometimes a virgin, who would have a special son, usually associated with resurrection, and that special son would be a savior. This imagery of the mother and her child, a special mother and a special child, you see in all, almost all ancient religions. So for instance, in ancient Babylon, the mother is called Ishtar, and her son is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is pretty famous for the flood narrative out of Babylon. The Akkadian, the woman is called Semiramis, and her son is Tammuz. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know Tammuz is mentioned in Ezekiel. If you go to Egypt, it's Isis the mother, and the son is alternately called either Osiris or Horus. And in fact, you think of the sun god for the Egyptians, the rising and setting of the sun and the seasons of fruitfulness or lack of same. That was the cycle of, of resurrection for them, associated with Osiris and Horus. If you go to Greek mythology, it's Dionysus and his mother Persephone. If you go to Roman mythology, it's Bacchus, his mother Semele. And by the way, even in saying this, the, the myths and the legends in other uh, ancient religions are so convoluted and so mixed up that the names sometimes change too. I'm trying to give you what are the most common. 
But they all share this same story about a mother and child. When I was growing up as a Roman Catholic, you would often see an image of Mary and Jesus. And the image would typically look like Mary, grown-up Mary, with a halo around her head, holding, either on her lap or in her arms, baby Jesus. And I've joked about baby Jesus here before, you know, that he's always the infant Christ. Well, there's a reason. That imagery, it doesn't start with Roman Catholicism, and it doesn't start with Christianity. You can see those very same images from pagan mythology. The, the mother and child, this isn't original to Christianity, but there it is. You know, you grow up with it in church, but that imagery didn't start with Jesus and Mary. It didn't start with Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodox either. It goes back. That imagery goes way, way back, way back to the beginning of Genesis itself. You remember that God made a promise to Adam and Eve, and that's what we'll look at this morning, that one day... He would send a Savior. He would send someone. He's going to call the seed of the woman. He would send someone that would redeem them from the curse that was brought about through their interaction with the serpent. That son called the seed in Genesis we know today is Jesus. But for millennia, he's sort of been hidden in other traditions, in other languages, in other religious faiths, but he was there nonetheless all along. If you go back to Genesis, you can look there if you want briefly, Genesis 3. You remember after the creation, the perfection of beauty there in Eden, everything's as it should be, but it doesn't last long. And the text tells us, sort of without further description, that there's Eve and and along comes this person who's otherwise not been introduced called the serpent. And he speaks to Eve and he challenges God's word about the forbidden fruit. And he tempts Eve. And she falls for that temptation and she eats from the fruit and so does Adam. And of course later when God comes walking through the garden to fellowship with Adam and Eve. They hear him and this time they don't go to see him. They run away and they hide. So he finds them, and he goes to Adam, not Eve. He goes to Adam because Adam's the head. He's the responsible party. And he says, Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to? What does Adam do? He, he shifts blame, doesn't it? This is where it starts. He says, well, the woman, and by the way, it was the woman that you gave me. That's double blame shifting, isn't it? The woman that you gave. And so he says to the woman, you know, what have you done? And she says, well, the serpent... You know, the serpent, not me. The serpent, he tempted me and I ate. And so when God addresses them, he starts, reverse order, he starts with the serpent, the place the blame had ended. And he begins this very short dialogue in which he tells the serpent and Adam and Eve what's going to change because of the sin. But it's very interesting what he says to the serpent. This is Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you've brought sin into the world, sin and death. Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat. And I will put enmity, or hatred, or animus, friction, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head... And you shall bruise him on the heel. 
So in this exchange, God says a couple very important things. One, He says, the appearance of the serpent has changed. And we don't know what this means. This isn't specific in the text. We don't know what all that looks like. But the serpent takes on a different form. And, and now we say it's going to crawl on the dust. And it's not so much that it eats dust, that it, that's its diet. But it's, you remember, dust is the place of death and defeat. The serpent's going to be frustrated by defeat. But also something else is going to happen. There's going to be this, this friction, this opposition between the seed of Eve, her descendants, and the seed of the serpent. Now, this, this takes on a life of its own. Hopefully you have a study sheet. And the question rises, who are the seed and who is the seed? Who are, plural, who are the seed, who is, singular, who is the seed. Seed's one of those interesting words, isn't it? Does it mean one or does it mean many? And the answer to that is yes. It means one and it means many. If you look at the first half of verse 15, I will put enmity. There's going to be strife. There's going to be warfare between you and the woman. This is spoken to the serpent. You and the woman, strife, enmity, and between your seed and her seed. This is plural. So let's answer the question, who are the seed? Plural, who are the seed of the serpent and the woman? And before we do, let me just say this. In Scripture, you'll see a, a theme that goes like this. Because of an association, a person and a group may be spoken of interchangeably. Now last week we talked about this when we said, if Adam is your father, then sometimes God may speak of you as Adam or Adam as you. You're, you're vitally linked and you're connected. And through that you have an identity that's unique to both the group and the person. So Adam's in me and I'm in Adam and that means I get what Adam gets. But that's also true of a number of other things. So, for instance, this is an Old Testament example. Daniel 7 is a very famous prophetic passage. Because Daniel is given a series of visions in which he sees the future. And in Daniel 7, he sees these crazy looking beasts, lion and leopard, a bear, and a beast that defies sort of animal recognition, a terrifying beast. And then at the end of these, he sees a person go up to a figure that he assumes is God. And, and the person, the text says, is one like a son of man. He looks like a man. And he goes up to one called the Ancient of Days. And Daniel is told, Daniel, this is the deal. Those animals, those beasts, those are coming kingdoms. They're represented as a beast. But that last person you saw that went up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Son of Man. And He's going to receive a kingdom. And and we know Luke's Gospel talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. When Jesus says, you'll see Me on the clouds of glory, He's referring to this text in Daniel 7. He's claiming to be this one that would receive God's eternal kingdom. But it's interesting in Daniel 7, when Daniel gets the explanation of the the, uh, prophecy, what he'd seen, he's also told this, He's told that the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom. See, in the vision, we see the Son of Man, but 
Daniel's told it's the saints of the Most High and the Son of Man are one and the same. When the Son of Man receives the kingdom, the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom, and vice versa. They're used interchangeably in the same text. Because there's this union and this identity, because they're connected. And that's part of what's going on in Genesis 3.15. If we say, who are the seed? That's the right question. That's plural. If we say, who is the seed? That's the right question. That's singular. Now first, let's say, the seed in the first half of verse 15, those are the godly descendants of Eve that follow in Eve's footsteps and believe the promise of a Savior and the God who gave the promise. The seed are plural. They're, the, they're spiritual descendants, not just the physical descendants of Adam and Eve, the spiritual descendants of Eve. And the serpent, the seed of the serpent then, are those also who follow the serpent. Now, Satan doesn't reproduce physically, but there, there are people, there are descendants of Eve who follow the ways of the serpent. They oppose God, and they oppose those on earth who follow God, the seed of the woman, the spiritual seed of the woman. You'll see this throughout the rest of the Bible. And for me, this is the cool thing. Because we want to see Christ in the Scriptures, because we want to know Him more fully, if you start with Genesis 3.15, that's helpful. But this goes throughout the Scriptures. So, when we read biblical stories that show a godly person or group in battle with an ungodly person or group, we are seeing Genesis 3.15 played out. And because ultimately the fulfillment of this is in the person of Jesus, each time we read those accounts, we should be reminded of the ultimate seed who was promised who would come, the one who would fight against the serpent and would overcome. So it's not just that Genesis 3.15 tells us about Christ... Every time we see the seed of the woman combating the seed of the serpent, we're reminded about the same thing. So this goes throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. In Genesis 4, one of the first stories in the Bible post-fall, do you remember what happens between two brothers? So Genesis 4, faithful Abel, we know Abel is saved. He's, he's described in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. He offered sacrifices by faith to God, and godly Abel is slain by ungodly Cain. That's exactly what God told Eve would happen. There will be enmity between those who follow the serpent and those who follow you, the seeds of the serpent or Eve's seed. If you go to Genesis 21, verses 9 and 10, Verse 12 also, and this is reiterated in Romans 9. You remember Isaac? Isaac is a child of faith. Isaac was the child that only faith and God could produce. And the text tells us that Isaac is antagonized by, there's friction and there's enmity between Isaac and Ishmael. Because Ishmael is not the son of promise or the son of faith. Ishmael is the one that looks like a follower of the serpent, not one of the seeds of Eve. There's friction. In Exodus 1, when, in fact it's interesting, in Exodus 4, God calls the nation of Israel, my son, singular. 
the nation is my son. And what, what happens in Egypt to God's son, to the godly line of Eve? Pharaoh tries to kill all the sons, doesn't he? You see the ungodly follower of the serpent who worships many gods at odds with and slain the sons of the promised one, the God's son. There's enmity there. This is the same thing. When we read these stories, we should be seeing past them to the ultimate seed of Eve who would conquer the serpent. But each one of these is a microcosm of this enmity. Plural. Between those who follow you, plural, and those who follow the serpent. Now, not only do you see it in the, the warfare, the battles, the strife, but you also see it when you read the stories in which the ungodly member of the story is slain, often by a head wound, we should be thinking Genesis 3.15. And the ultimate fulfillment of that. Do any stories come to your mind where the bad guy is slain by a wound to the head? And hopefully a few do. Numbers 24 you remember as Israel's entering, entering the land and Balaam prophesies? Balak wants this new group cursed, but Balaam just speaks God's word. And among other things, Balaam says that a Savior will rise in Israel and he will crush the head of Moab, the ungodly tribe of Moab that wouldn't help Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. In Judges 4, this is a story the kids usually like, the godly Jael kills the ungodly ruler of the Canaanites, King Jabin. And kids, do you remember what she does? Kind of gruesome. But she drives a tent peg through his head. It's a wound to the head that kills the ungodly enemy. In 1 Samuel 17, how does the little seed of Eve, the, the young boy who's not yet a warrior... How does he destroy the mighty giant of the ungodly seed of serpents? He, it's a stone to the head, isn't it, that fells the great Goliath. You know, sometimes too, what you'll see is that the ungodly seed is part of a line of promise otherwise. So for instance, we know that from Abraham, God said, I've got a line of promise that I'll keep the promise from Genesis 3.15 going through Abraham. But in Judges 9, the wicked Abimelech, who is from Abraham, he murders his 70 brothers so that he can lay hold and keep the kingship there. Do you remember how Abimelech is slain? It's a stone is thrown from a tower that crushes his head. It's the same thing. And in fact, John 8, 44, Jesus said to the Jewish rulers of his day, you are of your father, the devil. You're not Eve's seed spiritually. You're of your father, the devil. So, at a very important level, in the first half of Genesis 3, 15, the seed is plural. And if it's the seed of the serpent, it's those who reject God. They reject His word, His claim, and His promise. And they oppose, and they always oppose, the seed of the woman that take God at His word and believe Him and follow Him. 
And that enmity has been going on ever since. So when you read those Old Testament stories about the strife between two parties, one in which is the godly followers and the others are not, guys, that is Genesis 3.15. And when we read those, we should be clued in. God is referring, these are echoes, these are road signs to the second half of Genesis 3.15, the ultimate one who would come, the ultimate singular seed of the woman who would come and would destroy Satan. So when we read those Old Testaments, the Old Testament is full of Christ, even when we might not otherwise think He's there. He is there. In all of these stories of strife, Christ is represented there because it's the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. That goes on today, of course, and we'll talk about that a little bit more near the end. Now, ultimately, from the last half of Genesis 3.15, and this is where we derive our hope, of course, Jesus is singularly the seed of the woman. He's Eve's descendant. When it says, He, singular, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You know, going back to those uh, other religious claims and stories... If you read much uh, religious literature, especially on these lines, uh, different competing religious stories from the past, the secular scholars will usually tell you that the biblical accounts are copies of the pagan accounts. And they do so for this reason. They say the earliest written records we have of these accounts are not biblical, they're pagan. They wouldn't say pagan, but they would say they originate in other areas. And so because a written account, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, is older than the writings we have of the Old Testament, they say that's the original, the biblical view is the copy. And here's a different spin on that, though. If the biblical account is true... And if the world was resettled by Noah and his children and their wives, then really what we would have is we would have encapsulated in that original group, we'd have all the same stories and we'd have all the same knowledge, wouldn't we? And as those families reproduced and they started to spread, they would all know the same things. They would all know Genesis 3. They'd all have heard the same stories from Noah. And as they spread, though, probably part of what would happen is from one generation to another, you know, you tell a story, how many times, how many times does it change? Doesn't a little bit with every retelling. But also then you get to Genesis 11, and God's not pleased because men, instead of dispersing to fill the earth, they're trying to hold things together. They form their own religion and their own God. They're going to build a tower that reaches to the skies. It's led by a guy named Nimrod. And by the way, in the pagan variations of the theme, the woman and child, Nimrod is usually assumed to be the real man behind the pagan version of this story. Not Jesus, not the seed of the woman, but Nimrod, the man who starts the key kingdoms at Nineveh and Babylon. And God doesn't like what Nimrod is up to. And so you remember in Genesis 11, he comes down and he confuses their languages. 
And because the languages are now confused, they can't hang out together. So what do they do? They disperse with each language group. So again, if you imagine that they've started with the same stories, the same body of knowledge, as generation passes those stories down to another generation, it gets changed a little bit. One language to another, it gets changed a little bit. But also, Romans 1 says that mankind is disposed to spiritual darkness and that we willfully turn from the truth. So through these dynamics, you can imagine that though we all started with the same stories, we get variations of the theme over time. One generation to another, and one group and another turning from the original truth. Variations on the theme, but all coming from the original story. I believe Genesis 3.15 is the genesis of all these hero myths. We can trace them all back to Genesis 3.15. It's the ultimate hero story. So when you read Genesis 3, or when you read the variations that come up through the Bible about these antagonistic relationships, we're meant to see Christ ultimately. He, he is the constant there. Not, not a mighty hunter before God, Nimrod. But ultimately, right back to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. Uh, new Christians, you know, the first time they try and read through their Bible, if you talk to them honestly, uh, how's it going? You know, if they're bogged down, I can bet that they're sort of in one of two texts. If They say, man, I'm in a tough passage. And, and I might say, well, is it Leviticus, you know? Are you in the law? Are you reading the, the laws in Leviticus? And if it's not Leviticus, it's probably one of the genealogies, isn't it? One of the genealogies. You know, it's one name after another. And you say, why did God bother with all those genealogies, right? Now, sometimes it's for something like the priesthood. Because God said priests have to come from Levi, and high priests have to come from Aaron. And so sometimes those genealogies, thinking especially of post-exile, when Israel goes back to the land and they're going to reinstitute a priesthood, they've got to know who can serve. And so those genealogies are important. But when you read the genealogies, especially in Genesis, and then again in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, you're reading genealogies that are meant solely to tell you that link by link, generation by generation, promise by promise, God would keep his promise to Eve, Genesis 3.15, and he would send a savior son, a physical descendant, and the spiritual heir of the promise to Eve, in Genesis 3.15, he would keep that. So when you read the genealogies, think of Genesis 5, 10, 11, and 25, opening passages of Matthew and Luke, those genealogies are credentials for Jesus. So that's another way to say when I'm re reading the genealogy, I'm again pointed to Christ. All of this is to say, guys, it doesn't matter if we're reading Genesis 3.15, if we're reading the stories about the opposition from God's line and the serpent's line. It doesn't matter if we read the genealogies in the beginning of Matthew and Luke. They're all for the same purpose. We're meant to see Christ in all of them. We're meant ultimately to read the Bible, what we would say Christologically. We're meant to see Christ in all of it. He's in all of it. That changes the way we read it. Now we know ultimately that Jesus fulfills this promise. That he's the promise, singular seed of the woman. You know, if you read through the New Testament, you'll read a variety of reasons that Jesus came to the earth... 
One of them is Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says this, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2 tells us Jesus came to render Satan powerless. Jesus came to deal a crushing head blow, a signal defeat to Satan. That's why he came to the earth. Hebrews 2. 1 John 3.8 says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy <clears throat> the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Now the question becomes, how is Jesus going to crush the serpent's head? What does that look like? How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Now, you know, Satan rules the world, sort of his, his ability to rule the world today is basically through sin. It's through sin. When our first parents submitted to Satan in sin... They capitulated, they give, gave him authority to rule over the world they'd been entrusted with. And so, Satan is ruling the world today through sin. And if we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to Satan. If Jesus is going to do something to crush the serpent and to liberate us, he's going to have to do something about sin. In John eight thirty four, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. If we're going to be freed from the serpent, from Satan, we have to be freed from sin. Romans 6.16 says the same thing. You're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. If Jesus is going to crush the serpent's head, he has to do something about sin. And by the way, just a brief, brief word here. When we sin, it doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how fun it is in the moment. It always brings death, and it always enslaves us. When, when Jesus says he came to set captives free, friends, we all sin, and we sin in many ways, and that's a given. And Jesus has come to save us from that. But whatever our sins are, however hidden they are, however dark they are, however much we minimize them or excuse them or rationalize them, they always leave us a slave to sin. They never help us. They never, never liberate us. They never do us any good. It's always death. They always produce death. And Jesus came to liberate us from death. But he's got to do something about sin if that's going to happen. He has to take care of sin if he's going to crush Satan. And that's exactly, of course, what happens on the cross. John 12, 31, Jesus said this as he's anticipating his last night with his disciples and his crucifixion the next day. Judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Through my crucifixion and resurrection, the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's going to be judged. I'm going to deal him a crushing death blow in my crucifixion and resurrection. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says it this way, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 
It's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. That's the crushing death blow to the serpent. So, on the cross, Jesus is wounded, but Satan is crushed. And just a second on that. If we say someone's wounded, but the other guy is crushed, you know, in our mind's eye, it might look a little different than the cross did. Because on the cross, Jesus doesn't look wounded. He looks vanquished, doesn't he? I mean, physically, if you think about it, just physically, he doesn't defend himself. And he's scourged, and his flesh is ripped, the crown of thorns on his brow. He's slapped, he's mocked, he's humiliated, he's shamed as a man. He doesn't defend himself in any way. Hanging on the cross, the Father cuts off his fellowship. This had never happened in all of eternity. That's why Jesus says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus is now bearing our sin. And then also, last, the wrath of God, the perfect wrath of a perfect, omnipotent God is poured out on Christ on the cross. That is Jesus' wound and, and his physical death. That's his wound. It looks like a death wound to Jesus, not to Satan. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was the blameless Lamb of God who died. And death could not keep him down. And he rises from the dead. He heals, as it were. And he bears in his body those wounds. We know it's him that died. But he's healed. It's a wound and it's to death on one hand, but it's not ultimately fatal to the Prince of Life. And he rises again. But the cross and the resurrection are the crushing head blow to Satan. Now if I say that today, you're probably thinking like I do. If Satan was vanquished at the cross and the resurrection, then what's going on today? Because it doesn't look like our side is winning. <clears throat> so what's going on today? Let me tell you briefly a story from 1 Samuel. You remember back in the day Israel says, we want a king. We want somebody that looks like those Gentiles. And God says, well, okay, not, not my best plan for you, but I've got just the man for you. He's exactly what you're after. Because he's tall. And he's strong. And he's handsome. He looks like a king. And his name is Saul. And Israel gets exactly what they wanted. And he's like them. He's like them. But you know what Saul's portrait is? It's a portrait of the seed of the serpent. Saul is not a godly man. I feel sorry for Saul, I confess, when I read through his story. But Saul is a picture of the seed of the serpent. He blows everything. He does nothing by faith. He disobeys God. He gets everything wrong. These weren't just subtle mistakes. It's because he's not following the Savior God. He's not. And what does Saul do later? He persecutes someone, doesn't he? And who does he persecute? Well, he persecutes David. And who is David? Well, David's the seed of the woman. And do you remember in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is led by God to Jesse, the household of Jesse in Bethlehem, to anoint a new king. Saul is still king. Saul is still reigning. And David is anointed in secret. And though David is the king, no one knows it at the time. And when the enmity starts, what does David do? He runs. He's not hanging out in Jerusalem anymore. <clears throat> we call David a king in exile. 
And if you wanted to follow King David, where did you go? <clears throat> you went to the wilderness where King David was. Because he's not in Jerusalem. Friends, if you were a true follower of Yahweh following Eve's seed, you were in the wilderness with an exiled king. And that is the picture of King Jesus today. King Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven, ruling, but he rules as a king in exile. And though the death blow has been dealt, by the way, back to David and Goliath, you know the stone knocks Goliath out, doesn't he? And he falls to the ground. But that's not the end of the carnage, is it? Because David goes up and he finishes the job. And he takes Goliath's giant sword and he cuts off his head. Just like we do to a snake, isn't it? He cuts off his head. Well, the death blow has been dealt to the serpent. But his head, as it were, has not yet been cut off. And we serve a king in exile. And so the battle's still going here for a little while. That spiritual warfare <clears throat> and the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, it's still going on. We serve a king in exile. Our battles are spiritual. We know that from Ephesians 6. Going to Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation 12 says uh, there's going to come a day when Michael and his angels, they're fighting the serpent and there's no more room for them in heaven and they're cast to the earth because that spiritual warfare is still going on just like the book of Daniel where you see spiritual angelic warfare going on Revelation 20 got this passage about uh, Satan is bound up the serpent he's thrown in a pit for a thousand years and Messiah rules and reigns on the earth but what happens after a thousand years and the serpent is let out again the story says well he raises an army and he's going to march in against King Jesus at Jerusalem, crazy. Revelation 20, it says, They came up, this enemy army of the serpent. They came up on the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of the story. That's the serpent's head, as it were, cut off. The death blow's been dealt, but the serpent has not yet been put away. You remember in Daniel 7, it says the saints of the Most High are the same as the Son of Man, because they get the kingdom. The saints of the Most High get the kingdom that we saw the Son of Man given. Well, there's a neat verse in Romans 16, 20, Paul's winding down his magnum opus and we've had all this great theology and he's saying hello and goodbye to one person and another there in his last chapter in Romans 20. He says this in verse or 16, verse 20. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that interesting? And he's speaking to the church. He's treating the church and Jesus as one and the same because he's applying the imagery of Genesis 3.15 to the church. He's saying that the church, as Jesus, in Jesus, will step on the serpent's head just as the promised seed of the woman would. That the saints will crush Satan under our feet. Now it doesn't look like that's going on today, does it? But you know we do have victory. 1 John 5, 4 says this, 
Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You and I can have defeats of a number of kinds, and we will. But we can still win the battle, the strife, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent through faith. Faith is what vanquishes the enemy in your life and mine today. Faith in God and His Word. Revelation 12.11 says this, that passage when Michael and his angels cast out the serpent and his angels says of the people on the earth, when Satan comes down and all his fury out on the earth, it says they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb, Jesus' death on the cross, has covered my sin. That's my salvation. That's my freedom. And my testimony, that's, that's the word of faith I have about God's transformation in my life. That goes back to my conversion. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, they overcame. It is a bloody uh, battle that we're in. And it's filled with lots of uh, defeats. But we know ultimately that Christ, in the crucifixion, he's defeated... Satan and sin and death at the cross and at his resurrection. And because we're in Christ, it says that we too share that same posture that our heel is on the head of the serpent. That's the position of victory. And no matter what's going on in our life, how we're being tempted, how we fail, what the defeats are... Faith ultimately is the key that brings victory out of what otherwise looks like defeat. And guys, sometimes it does look like Christ on the cross looks vanquished. And sometimes that's what your life and mine looks like too. But there's resurrection. There's a king in exile who's going to come back one day. And the serpent of old, Revelation 20 verse 2 says, The devil, the serpent of old, Satan, is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's how this all ends. So whatever's going on in the battle today, the thing to know is that I belong to the seed of the woman. Whatever else, I belong to the seed of the woman. Uh, Nice people, doesn't matter. Godly parents, doesn't matter. Grew up in church, doesn't matter. There's been conversion. I have a new head in Adam, the second Adam. I have a new birth. I'm a follower of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus. I have a new origin. And if I have that testimony, I have a new hope and a new future. Let me conclude with some words from a guy who knew something about spiritual warfare and something about the battle between heaven and earth and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and This is what he wrote in the midst of his turmoil and his battles. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal, 
That's true. That's the serpent. He's still at it today. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Who's the seed? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. That's our story. That's what Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you that in your divine providence you've written Jesus into every page of your book. and That Lord, genealogies and stories of oppression and strife and kingdoms and kings, Lord, and life and death all point ultimately to the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman and Father, thanks for writing that so big and so broad that we can't miss it. Father, thanks that through simple faith in your risen Son, we can have that regenerating new birth, that new life, that freedom from sin and Satan and death, Lord. And we we lay hold of that by the hands of faith again today. And Lord, we bless your name for saving us. And Lord Jesus, for conquering our opponent and yours, the serpent and for giving us eternal life. Amen.